Welcome to the weekly podcast for City Chapel at Slaughter Creek, the world's okayest church, right here in Austin. Get to know us better at citychapelchurch.com. We're so glad that you joined us today and hope you enjoy the message. The first week, I kind of preached about the outside, and then, and then um, on the 26th, I, uh, January, I, I preached on the altar of, of, of burnt offering, and I preached about the blood of Jesus, how he is our sacrificial lamb who was slain for us. He's the sin offering. Uh, if you didn't hear it, man, it's a, it's a, it's a really powerful message. Go back on, 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 on YouTube or Facebook or our podcast or something and listen to it because God is, I, I, I love preaching, and it's not so much standing up and talking. I actually don't like standing up and talking very much, but I love preaching because I love studying the Word of God. So I study the Word of God, and I get fired up about it. You guys probably noticed, like, he's kind of excited about it. Well, I am. I'm fired up. And it's not just like a show. This is my every day. Like, this is me and Ro up at night laying on the bed. I'm talking about the tabernacle. I'm like, babe, did you read this? And have you ever heard about that? And did you ever think about this? And, and I don't know if she gets tired of it or not, but I'm like, I'm fired up about the Word of God because it's there's so many layers to it. There's so many applications to it. It's so, it is water. The word of God is water. It's refreshing to my soul, to my life. I mean, it, it gives me purpose. It helps me realize why I'm here. And so I get fired up about it. And then anytime I'm studying something like this, I'm, it's visual, you know. So my brain's like all activated. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking about the visual nature of it. And so that's what I really love about this sermon series. So, so Sunday, you know, the 26th, uh, I preach about the altar. And this is just how kind of messed up I am like I, I I go home and I immediately start thinking about the next sermon like I don't even have to preach the next week because we're showing a video but I'm 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 already fired up about it I don't know if there's something wrong with me but I'm I'm, I'm looking forward to the next sermon planning it and I'm sitting there on the couch mom and dad had the kids because they're in town this is their last day in town they're going back to Michigan so everybody make them feel guilty and That'd be great. But, uh, but no, they, 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 they took the kids, and Roe was out feeding the horses. So it was just me on the couch, and I'm just sitting there thinking about, about the revelation that God's pouring, like opening up to me about the tabernacle. And, and one of the big things that I felt was big for me when I was studying about the altar was not only how it's a symbol of the blood of Jesus and the, and, and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which is huge, but for me what was new was the fact that it's also a symbol of, of the sacrament of communion. And so the early church, the early church fathers, they called that table that, that they put up down at the front, they called it an altar. Why would you call a table an altar? Well, because it is symbolic of the altar, the Old Testament altar. And, and Paul deals with that in, I think it's 2 Corinthians 14, where he says, he says, all who eat of the altar are one with the altar. So he's looking back to the tabernacle and the priest, how they used to eat part of the sacrifice. And now he's looking forward to us as Christians. We are partaking of the body and blood of Jesus when we celebrate communion or what they called back in those days, the Eucharist. And this is something, I mean, it's really important. That, that's something that's always fascinated me as a Protestant, um, because in, it's in sort of the Protestant world, we don't think a lot about communion. You know, like I had communion one time with like Mountain Dew and pizza, you know. And maybe that's sacrilegious, but we were in college and we were Protestants and we were like, all right, something to drink, something to eat, that's communion. And, um, but I'm, I'm beginning to sort of rethink that because it was so important to the early church. And I don't mean the, the Roman Catholics. I mean before Constantine, like, like the early church, like, like, like Ignatius 
and Polycarp and some of the guys that were contemporaries of John, the revelator, you know, the last living disciple, they were pastoring around the same time that John was, and they were really into communion. So much so that one of them said that you can't be a real church if you don't have an altar, a table for the sacrament of communion. They were serious about it. So Roe, like, like, like Roe was visiting um, Greece one time. I, I think it was Greece. And she was, she was looking at some of the ancient civilizations over there. And she, she got to go into an underground church. It was pretty cool. Like they dug it out literally from the ground um, to be underground because they were in hiding. And so she went, she crawled down into this little underground church. And sure enough, they had just cleared out a space for meeting. But down at the front of the meeting, there wasn't a pulpit. There was a mound of dirt like a, like a table, like an altar for the, the wine and the bread. And there was only two things. There was a mound, which is, which is an altar for, for, for the wine and the bread. And there was a ditch dug out uh, for, uh, for, for baptism. It's like a, sort of like a horse trough, like what we have right there. And there was a ditch dug out for baptism. It's interesting that the early church, the only thing, they, they, they didn't have lights. They didn't have microphones. They didn't have chairs with cushions on them. They had two things. They had the altar for the sacrament of communion and a, and a pool for, for a sacrament of baptism. And it's interesting as I'm sitting here on my couch thinking about how this is like a symbol of, of, of the altar of communion. Then I realize the very next thing is a big bowl of water. And I'm like, wait a minute, hey, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I see a correlation here. The two sacraments are right there in the outer court. And as I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm really what I've been doing in prayer and in study, I've been asking God, okay, Lord, um, I understand how the tabernacle is prophetic of the body of Christ. And one of these days, I'm probably going to preach on that. But, but, but what I'm really interested in is what does it mean for us? Like, what is the real what is, what, is, what is it copying? What is, the, what is the real thing that we are looking forward to? And so, and so as I'm sitting there on my couch, I realize that here in the outer court are both sacraments, both of, of communion and of baptism, which, by the way, in Protestantism, we, we do see those differently than, than uh, Roman Catholics. So Roman Catholic would say that those things are um, an end to themselves, that salvation comes through uh, eating the bread from the hand of the priest and baptism, that you can't be saved without it. But in Protestant, we would say that they are more of a means to an end. They are, they are things that help us along this journey, remind us of things which have been and which th things which are coming. Um, but there is significant power to them. Uh, and Scripture talks about that. Uh, Peter even says it is this baptism which saves us. Uh, and he doesn't talk about that it replaces the blood of Jesus. Rather, it comes alongside the blood of Jesus and does something in your life. And in the book of Acts, man, every time people were saved or they put their faith in Jesus, immediately they were baptized in Jesus' name, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we believe in baptism, we believe in communion, but just not in the exact same way as Roman Catholics. But I'm sitting there and I'm like, man, this outer court, has the two sacraments. And this is something that, that, I, that I'm just going to stretch your brain for a little bit here at the beginning. I'm going to stretch it like this, and then I'm just going to leave it alone. And then I'll just, you'll, you'll be messed up all day. Um, so that's, that's, that's my plan. There are three main components to the tabernacle. You have the outer court, you have the holy place, and you have the holy of holies. The outer court, you see, is, is surrounded by these white linen drapes. Okay, white linen drapes, and then there is one door which is of a different color because it is different than the white. It is separate. It is, it is symbolic of Jesus. Jesus is the one door. Now, now, my question is, what is the outer court a copy of? 
And so this is just me. This is not the Bible, but I feel like there is some evidence to support this. I feel like the outer core is a copy, a carbon copy of the church on earth. That, that this is a, a foreshadowing of the church. That the, the outer court is a foreshadowing of the church. The church on the earth. The church, whether it's city chapel or whatever true church. By the way, a church is not a building. Uh, I think it was A.W. Tozer who said, The true church is born from above. In it are no sinners and outside of it are no saints. So the true church is something that is born from above. It is the bride of Christ. It is the body of Christ. It, it's described in a lot of ways, but it's definitely not described as a building or a denomination or a particular worship style. That's not the church. The church, though, is this right here. And, and all around the outside of what I believe is the church is this white linen. White stands for righteousness. In the book of, in the book of Revelation, it talks about the saints of God and says they are clothed in white linen, which are, and he explains it, which are the righteous acts of the saints. So I believe that this is symbolic of the church because, because we have been clothed in, in white linen. Now, now, that doesn't mean that we have our own righteousness from our, our, our own uh, sense of self-worth and our own sense of determination. But rather, through the blood of Jesus and through the water of washing in the word of God, we are able to walk with God and produce these acts of righteousness so that when the world sees the church... See, remember, this is in the wilderness. It's sand everywhere. There, nothing is white. But when the world sees a church, they're supposed to go, what's that? That's why the Bible says that we are a peculiar people. That's a nice word of saying very weird. <laughs> like we're supposed to be. We're not, like, we don't laugh at the same jokes they laugh at because we don't find the same thing funny. Well, anyway, we're not entertained by the same thing they're entertained by. Because we don't find it entertaining, the degradation of people. We don't find that entertaining. We're not entertained by that. It's getting real quiet now. People want to be where I am, but they don't like it when I tell them how I got here. I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you, you cannot be outside rolling in the mud and be with inside the church at the exact same time. It doesn't work that way. The, the righteous acts of the saints are the righteous acts of the saints. This is things that they do through the power of the Holy Spirit and the blood of Jesus. So that, so, so that if you are not clothed in white, you are not in the church. You might be in a denomination. You might be in a club. You, you, you might really like Christian radio. I don't know. You might be a part of the, the church's Facebook group. I don't know how that works. But to be in the church is to be clothed in white linen. This is, this, is, this is the circumference. And there's only one way in. His name is Jesus. Jesus welcomes us into the church. But guess what? You're not white when you come into the church. The whole purpose of the tabernacle was so that sinners could become saints. That was the whole purpose, that God would dwell and that sinners would come to the door. Sinners would go through the door, but they wouldn't stay sinners. That when they came into the door, there was this thing right here called the altar of burnt offerings where, where, their, where their sin would be atoned for, where the blood of the lamb would deal with the sin of their heart. But it wasn't just the altar, though. After that, there's this laver right here, and God gives very clear reasons why he wants, why he wants a laver or a basin so that you won't die. <laughs> That's a warning way of saying so that you will live. In other words, the altar removes 
re- removes you from your sin, but the, but the basin removes the sin from you. So the, the, the altar gets you out of Egypt, and the, the basin gets Egypt out of you. The altar deals with your sin of your heart. The basin deals with the sin of your, your hands and your feet, of your life. It, it enables you to live with what God has done in your heart. Does that make sense? It helps you, it helps you live it out. It helps you not die. It helps you, I mean, because literally you can, you can accept the blood of the lamb, but if, you don't, if you're not washed in the basin, you will not live with it. You won't be able to carry it. It won't, it won't, it won't radically change you. It'll be an internal thing which will be short-lived. Short-lived. Dying. <laughs> that's, that's, trying to be practical preaching here. God said so you don't die. That's why I want you to wash. And so, and so I feel like the church has these two. They're not just sacraments. They're not just, you know, communion and baptism. They are, the, the sacraments are, are a bigger picture of what God wants to do in your life. He wants to, yes, purify your heart, salvation through the blood of the lamb and only by the blood, but then bring about sanctification in your life by the washing of the word and the renewing of your mind. So that in Ephesians, he says that he might present us perfect without spot and without wrinkle talking about the washing so the washing is important the washing is absolutely important this is the this is the year 2020 i just declare this is the year you're gonna get a spiritual bath you're gonna you're gonna get a spiritual but you're gonna figure out it's one thing it's one and it's one thing to to have god do something in you but you can still stink touch somebody and no never mind (laughs) Don't even bother. <laughs> uh, don't want to get people offended up in here. Uh, no, you can, st- you can still have a stench. So you've got to, you got to have a washing, spiritual bath. And we need to go to the basin. And just so I'm, I'm back in my living room. I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking about that. But then I'm asking God, okay, so if the, if the outer court is the, the church, then what's the, what's the next level? What's the holy place and what's the holy of holies? And this is what I think God just began to show me. And, and once again, this is not absolute Bible. Uh, you need to go study for yourself. To, to, so that's what the Bible says. You're responsible for that. So um, this is my idea. This is what I think. Uh, there's a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. And Paul says that he knew a man who was caught up into the third heaven. Now, that's a weird verse because it's like, well, how many heavens are there? Obviously, at least three. If you're in the third of something, there is a second and a first. Can we agree on that? I think we can agree. Okay, so, so there's at least three. Now, now, I know nowadays people say, oh, I was in seventh heaven. Well, there's not seven. I, I mean, that I know of. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say there's seven. The Bible says there's three, which I think is significant because there are three sections of the tabernacle. There's also three portions or three aspects of the body of Christ. It's just there's three all over the place. And so it would make sense that there could be three heavens, which, by the way, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, says in the beginning God created the heavens, plural, and the earth. And then in, ver- and then in verse 2 and 3, he separates heavens. And he says, okay, this will be one heaven. It's called a firmament. And I believe that's the first heaven. The first heaven is this visible area. When you look at this, I say that this is visible because if you're looking at this from a bird's eye view, the entire outer court doesn't have any covering. 
It has a boundary line so you know what's in and what's out, but it doesn't have a covering so it's, 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 it's visible. However, the holy place and the holy of holies has walls around it and coverings of tarps over top of it so it's hidden. I'm going kind of deep, but it's important that, that your brain gets stretched a little bit because if you just think about this as a tent in a wilderness, you're not going to understand the significance for you and I today. It's important that you realize that there are things which are visible, there's a visible heaven like stars and moons and the sun and galaxies, stuff you can look in a telescope and see. There's a visible heaven, but then there are some hidden heavens. And in Colossians, it says that Jesus ascended to the heavens, plural, meaning he, yeah, he went through the cloud when he, when he, when he was lifted up, but he didn't, he just, he's, not, he's not up on a planet somewhere. He's not, because that's, that's still the first heaven. But there's another heaven, there's another dimension that we find him in when John in the book of Revelation is lifted up to that heaven. There's this whole another level. So, 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 so the purpose, though, of the outer court or the purpose of the first level or the first heaven is to get you into the second heaven. And that's, once again, it's getting kind of deep. What is the second heaven? Well, there's not a lot in Scripture about the second heaven. I do believe it's the place of spiritual warfare. I think it's where angels and demons are locked in conflict. It seems to be a, a place also where, where Christians are in a position with Christ. Scripture says that we are seated with him in heavenly places. This place is plural, heavenly. So that it's, it's almost like there's a place of, 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 of position. And this, and, 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 and this is what brings me to my point, the purity and power, the relationship between purity and power. Because in the book of Revelation, I'm sitting there on my couch, and I'm, and I'm thinking about these, these things. I'm like, okay, if this is the first heaven, if this is the church, then, then if this is the second heaven, how do, how do I know what's going on in there? Well, you can see the articles. You see the menorah, the seven lampstands, the altar of incense, the table of showbread. Well, what, well where is that in Scripture? Well, in, in, in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus describes himself as the one who walks among the lampstands. Well, that's not out here. That's in here. By the way, all of the utensils used in the outer court, they're all made of bronze or they're covered with bronze. All of the utensils used in here, they're all made of gold or they're covered with gold. Because one's more valuable than the other. And so, and so Jesus said, I'm the one who walks among the lampstands. And then he goes on to describe what the lampstands symbolize. He talks about how basically there's seven lampstands and he's writing letters to seven churches. And he warns one of the churches and he says, look, if you don't repent, I'm going to have to snuff out your lampstand. So the, the lamp in the second heaven is a position that Christians hold, a position of authority, a position of power. But Jesus gives a very, a very grim warning. He says, look, your, your lack of purity out here is affecting your source of power in here. It's, 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 it's a serious thing. It's, not, it's not, not, not meant to shame them. It's meant to help them. Because it's not that they didn't have the lamb. It's not that they didn't believe in the blood of Jesus. It's just that Jesus said in Revelation chapter 2, he said, I know your works. The Lord knows my heart. Yeah, he does, but he also knows your works. And he's interested in both equally. 
He's interested in your heart, absolutely. But, the, but if it was only your heart, he would have only had an altar out there. Because there you go, kill the lamb and then come on in. No, it's not the way it goes. You have to, you have to, you have to have, the shed blood of the lamb must be applied to your life. But then you must wash. Then you must be cleansed. Or else you will. Come on, somebody. That's what I'm talking about. Somebody's paying attention. In order to get to the next level. See, this is where I'm concerned about Christians who, who, who think that they can stay in one level. Who think they can hang out on one level. Because that was, that was never the intention. And actually, it's, it's not possible. The intention was that you would be washed in the blood of the Lamb for the cleansing of your sins. That you would be washed in the water of the Word for the renewing of your mind. For your hands and your feet to be pure. And then you would go into a level of power in the, in the unseen world. In the next level. And it's, and it's dangerous if you are a Christian trying to mess with stuff in the unseen world, but you aren't cleansed. <laughs> Jesus said, I know your works. And if he knows your works, every demonic power in that sphere knows your works as well. And, 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 it's, and it's dangerous when Christians mess with stuff they don't know anything about. Now, you don't have to live in fear of that. You just need to be washed. You must be washed because, because if, you can't, if you can't come in here, there's no way you're going to make it here. <laughs> I just, just, just letting you know, if you can't graduate kindergarten, you are not going to graduate high school. It's not going to happen. You cannot. You just can't do it. And so the stuff, the stuff you need in each level, God has provided the very things that you need to go to the next level. In each level, God has provided everything you need to take a step to the next level. But it, honestly, it's up to you to receive from it. So to the lamb, yes, you need to receive the blood of Jesus applied to your heart. But then to the basin, man, you must wash. And then when you do, you come into this next level. And this next level is going to be fun. Next week, I'm going to start preaching on this level because this is where the menorah is. That, that's where the light of, of, of revelation is. Um, there are seven uh, lamps there, and they stand for the seven churches. Uh, and those are all Gentile churches. Right across from them are 12 um, stacks of bread, which stands for the 12 tribes of Israel. And so that's, so on the one hand, you have the Gentiles. On the other hand, you have the Jews. In between them both, you have the altar of incense. That's the, the smelling fragrance of worship and prayer ascending to God. And, and here in this level is awesome. But the whole purpose of this level is then to be able to get you into this level where the Ark of the Covenant is. And just, just to kind of finish my, my thinking on the couch a couple Sundays ago. Revelation 21, John said, I saw a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. Oh, now it's just one heaven. Huh, that's interesting. Coming down from heaven. And, and he explains it. The new Jerusalem is the dwelling place of, of Christ um, for all eternity. It's the dwelling place of Christians for all eternity. It is what we think of when we think of streets of gold and heaven and all that kind of stuff. He says, I saw a new Jerusalem. And then he goes on to give the dimensions of the size of the thing. Like, like the outer boundary lines. And my thought has always been, who cares? Like, with all due respect, it's heaven. I don't care if it's a mini house or a mansion. Like, I want in. You know what I'm saying? Like, I assume there's room for me. I assume if he said, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. 
I mean, he's building something. I don't know if it's a sky rise or how it's going to work, but like if I just get in, if I even have to park in one of those parking things down below, I don't mind. It's fine. Like, but, but yet John gives the dimensions of the place. Why would you give dimensions? Because the dimensions, although different in size and scope, are mathematically are the exact same dimensions as the Holy of Holies. That heaven is also often called the heaven of heavens, which I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but to me, heaven of heavens and holy holies, that's just too easy. I mean, really, it's just he's just, he's just throwing it out there for us. And it's the exact same dimensions. This new Jerusalem is the exact same dimensions as the holy of holies. And then he goes on to give some details about it just in case you missed the, the significance of the, of the dimensions. He says, by the way, there's no temple in this new Jerusalem. And, 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 and if you notice, in every level, there are acts of worship or what, or what, or what they would call cultic acts, right? So there's, there's, there's killing of animals here. There's, there's ceremonial washing here. There's, there's ceremonial eating and offering incense. And there's things to be done in every level until you get here. You don't, you don't need the animals. You don't need the water. Until you, when, when you get there, you're done doing things. There's no spiritual warfare anymore. There's no more healing that needs to happen. No one's praying for cancer in the New Jerusalem. No one's dealing with depression in the New Jerusalem. Because it's done. No more washing of the word in the New Jerusalem. No more, what scripture says, uh, speaking of, is no more will you say to one another, no God, for you will all know me. No more preachers. I'll be out of a job. <laughs> but that's fine because this is my least favorite part of my job. Honestly, talking is my least favorite. I love studying. So I will be studying. I will be examining. I will be exploring. I will be asking Jesus questions literally for eternity. Like I'm, I'm not going to stop learning and knowing and diving into all that he is. I'll just stop bugging you guys about it it'll just be him and me and it'll be great and I won't have to think about how to explain it to you and make it funny I'll just be like this is great I'm just me and you like forever because in there there's nothing yet to do because the lamb the bible says the lamb is its own temple so the only article in that area is this box which has three things in it so three things in one that's the only, anyway, there's some interesting stuff there. There's only there's one thing, and it's actually three things, but it's one, and it's just there, and the presence of God is glowing. There's a Shekinah glory glowing right there, which, by the way, John also mentions that there is no sun in the New Jerusalem because the Lamb of God is its own light, and that's true of the Holy of Holies. There's nothing, there's no lamps, there's nothing in the Holy of Holies except for the manifest presence of God. The blue flame between the outstretched arms of the angels is the only glowing presence within the Holy of Holies. So I just think that that's the third heaven. I have a feeling that that is the third heaven. But if you, if, 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 if you can't go here, you definitely can't go there. And so the goal, I believe, of the church, the goal of the church is to take sinners in. Come on in. Come in as you are. Come in with, with your messed up attitudes. 
Come in with your selfishness. Come in with your addictions. Come in with your sexual perversion. Come on in. Like whatever you are, whatever, whatever, whatever's going on in your life, you are welcomed into the door. But the first thing we're going to bring you to is not, is, is, is not a preacher. It's not a pastor. It's not a worship team. The first thing you need to see is the shed blood of Jesus for your sins. And when you encounter the blood of Jesus, it changes you on the inside. But then the next thing that we're going to introduce you to is the word of God, which washes over you and changes the way that you think and the way that I think. Like, this is how you get to be so weird, (laughs) is by washing in a different kind of pool. See, because you've been washing in something. You got the dust of your slavery all over you. You've been walking around. You've been living in particular tents. You've been living in slavery. You've been living with with nonsense and strange value systems and anti-God beliefs. And so that's that that's over you. That's over your kids. It's caked so deep into your clothes that honestly we might just need to get rid of that and get you some new white linens to put on so that you can actually begin to think differently and act differently and value differently and love differently and hate differently. What you hate is messed up. What you love is messed up. It's all all upside down. And so the word of God washes. And by the way, it, it, it is a basin of water, not bleach. You have to understand the connection between the purity of your walk and the power that you have in the Holy Spirit. And to understand that, you, you have to know that God has not provided bleach for you to quickly, or soap, to quickly scrub away the stuff. He provided water, which takes time. Have you ever tried to wash blood off your hands with just water? Which is what the priest would have been doing. It's not a quick process. This is not McDonald's. It's not 60 seconds at the window and then you're out. This is, this is not quick. This takes time. But they're supposed to, man. The water is the word. The water is the word. You're supposed to be immersed in the word of God. You're supposed to be flooded with the word of God. You're supposed to be reading it on a daily basis so that you can get washed in it. That's why we keep coming to church even even on days where I don't think I really got much out of that sermon. Well, that's fine. Like, just keep washing. Just keep washing. Just keep. You don't know it's working, but just keep washing. The The working happens after the washing. You don't see it working, but it is working if you can just keep washing in it and before long your values begin to shift and before long your attitude begins to shift and before long your thoughts begin to shift and all of that stuff changes the stuff on the outside so don't don't run right to the drapes and try to get those white drapes come to the basin brother and sisters come to the water the word of God be washed in it you don't have to figure everything out right now just be washed in the word of God just submit to the word of God come under the word of God I don't know that I agree with everything in the Bible. Of course you don't. If you agreed with it, you would have written it. You didn't write it. Somebody else other than you, higher than you, smarter than you, greater than you wrote this book. He's handed it to you, not so that you can, you know, decide if you agree with him. It's so that you can be washed in it. Because you're not ready for the holy place. I'm not ready for the manifest presence of God. I'm still too dirty. I got too much dust from the tent I've been living in and the life that, and the culture around me. I'm too messed up by, by that stuff. I need to be renewed by my mind. I need to be changed into the image, into the image. I need a different image inside of me. I got this, this I don't have power in myself. None of us do. This is the, this is the call of washing. 
This is the call to the basin. This is the, this is the altar call to the basin that after you've experienced the blood of Jesus, you need to come, you need to come further, friend. You need to come further. Don't stop there. Because if you stop there, you can't keep it. You wonder why you have to keep coming back and why, you, why, 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 your, why your spiritual life is like this. Because you can't, can't hold on to it. You can't keep it. Can't keep the feeling from Sunday. It kind of wears off by Monday. Well, yeah. That's why you need to wash on Monday. <laughs> and you need to wash on Tuesday. That's the purpose of a daily wash. Like you gotta wash, you gotta wash away the dust of this culture. Romans, uh, we, we have a slide for Romans chapter 12, and this is from the message paraphrase, which I just thought was kind of interesting the way that he he put this. He said, Here's what I want you to do, according to God's help. Take your everyday ordinary life, your Mondays, your Tuesdays, your sleeping, your eating, your going to work, your walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God and you will be changed from the inside out. Quickly recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. This is how we wash in the word of God. Ephesians talks about the fact that that, that it's this washing that Christ wants to do inside of us. This is how it happens. Otherwise, we we get too cozy with our culture. I'm concerned that that the same culture that hated Christ likes us. And I'm wondering why. Why is it that, that, that the most holy man in the world, most full of love, was hated to the point where they all decided, not just the religious people, but all of them said, crucify him and give us Barabbas. We'd rather somebody who looks more like us. I think maybe that's why, maybe. That's why they like us. Because we look kind of like him. We don't, we don't, see, when when you see that white structure out there in the wilderness, if you put back up the structure, when you see that, man, you, you start to recognize just how dirty everything else is. And you don't like that. There's power, but that power is connected to purity. And God has provided purity for us. And if we go to Exodus chapter 38, verse 8, I'll go to my second point, which is mirrors and miracles. Because this has to do with how the, how the basin was constructed. It was constructed, in verse 8, we see that they made the bronze basin and its bronze stand from the mirrors of the women who served at the entrance to the tabernacle. This, I'd never noticed this before. This is so kind of strange to me because the way they made everything else was they took up a big offering. Moses took up a big offering and says, hey, come bring uh, your, your bracelets, your rings, your earrings, everything that they had collected from Egypt. Remember, when they left Egypt, they left as slaves, but people had given them so many things as they were leaving. They had gold, they had silver, they had bronze, they had copper, they had all this stuff. And, 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 God, and God said, I want you to take up a big offering from my people and collect enough uh, material to be able to build the tabernacle. And so they did. Uh, they, they collected gold, they collected copper, they collected the, the silver, the various things they needed, and then they made the stuff that God told them to make. But what's interesting is that when it came to the basin, to the bronze basin, God didn't give them any, um, any size measurements. 
Like almost every other piece, God said, I want you to make it, you know, this, this big by this big. All the dimensions were all set. But when it came to the basin, God didn't give them any specific size requirements. It's almost like he said, okay, we're, we're, we're going we're to pool all the stuff together to make these articles. But then we're going to take a special offering for the basin. And the basin is basically going to be as big as your offering. which I think is kind of the way that this cleansing thing works. The basin is as big as your sacrifice, as your offering, as what you bring to it. Uh, When Solomon built his temple, uh, hundreds of years later he built a temple. He also had a bronze basin, but for him, I mean, it was massive. He had several, actually. He said, hey, if God wanted one, we're going to have a lot. And he had these massive, they were like 30, 40 feet tall. Massive bronze basins. They were like, there's like little swimming pools with with bronze lions underneath them, like holding them. Like they're they're impressive to see, like the the drawings of them. It's 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 amazing. And so the, you couldn't even climb up there and get the water. They had to have little spigots, you know, to get the water out. But but in this case, we don't know how big the basin was, because God didn't say it can be like a like a drinking fountain size. It can be like a like a bowl size. It can. It can be like a horse trough size. We, do, we don't know how big the basin was because there was literally no specifications about how big it had to be. It was just going to be as big as the offering was. And so they took up an offering for it or, or these ladies offered themselves. We don't really know. But it's interesting to me that they, that they built it from the mirrors of the women. So I have a, have a little mirror here uh, just so you all can see your lovely faces. Um, but it, it, because I, I think this is one of the keys to building a basin for washing in, in your own life. So first of all, uh, if, if, if we could just uh, put, I, I, have, I have a slide to show the mirror, uh, the ancient mirror uh, that was found. This is an ancient Egyptian mirror. It's probably very similar to what the ladies would have had since they had come from Egypt. Um, they're, they're in the wilderness. They probably would have had something like that. It has a, has a bronze handle, but then it has a highly polished um, bronze flat plate so they didn't have like a glass kind of mirror instead they had in uh, these 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 metal mirrors you you can polish uh copper really really to where it's like almost white i don't know if you've seen that before and and you know it's like certain certain um uh dishes and stuff and you can see your reflection off of it uh enough to fix your makeup and whatever uh so you know so so this is something that was rather valuable back in the day but fairly common so even as slave people they would have had mirrors and, um, and it's just, it's interesting to me that, that the thing that they had been looking at all of their life, that that was the thing they chose to give to God, which I think is one of the steps. If you're going to build a basin, if you're going to come to the water, the water is not at church. <laughs> the water is not at church. We do have water and we baptize people, but there's nothing holy about that water. The water that is cleansing is the word of God. And the way that you build a, a reservoir to hold the, what God says about you is first to give up what you have been saying about you. You've got to turn in your mirror. You've got to turn in. It, 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 it's hard to worship and hold mirror at, at the same time. I mean, you, I mean, you can, but you end up, you don't end up worshiping God. Let's put it that way. You end up worshiping what's in the mirror. Because even when you raise your hands to God, you're looking at yourself. You're wondering, boy, I wonder what people think of me with my hands up. I wonder what people think of me when I'm singing loud. 
I want you, you're still, you're still looking, you're still checking yourself out. How your hair, how your hair is or how it's not. <laughs> Definitely need a cut. I need it trimmed up, man. Uh, yeah, I need it trimmed up. Jonathan, come on, somebody. Uh, you start, you start. <laughs> I got your number. Uh, you, you start, you start because, because you become like what you look at. And when you spend your life looking at yourself. Man, this, this would be revival right here. If, if a whole church decided, I don't need to focus on myself all the time. I'll turn in my mirrors. I'm going to, because, because they, were, they were the women worshiping at the door of the t- tabernacle, meaning that they had caught a vision of God that was so much better than the vision of themselves that they had been living with. And when you understand how beautiful God is, you don't spend all the time trying to make yourself more presentable to everybody. Instead, your self-image comes from His image. You start to value what He values, love what He loves, and you don't have to make sure that you look the part anymore. You don't have to have the mirror anymore. That would be revival. People breaking their mirrors, breaking their their social media filters, breaking their Insta whatever, and getting rid of this desire to please other people. Because that's what the mirror is. How do other people see me? And when you only see yourself how other people see you, you cannot hold, you cannot build a reservoir for the word of God. Because you're too busy checking to make sure that from every angle, I am looking good. And they, they turned in their mirrors. Now these mirrors, these, 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 there's not a lot known about the mirrors. You know, why would you need mirrors? There's, there is a sense in which, of course, it's to, it's to fix yourself. It's vanity, I guess. But um, as, as I was studying about this, there's, there's some interesting rabbinical writings. Uh, one, one rabbi in particular uh, is probably the most uh, well-received rabbi with regard to the mirrors. Uh, in the 11th century, he, he, he put together a story in the Midrash, which the Midrash is a, is a commentary. It's kind of like a commentary on the Talmud, which is kind of like a commentary on the Old Testament. So uh, it's basically scholars, Jewish scholars, rabbis trying to figure out what in the world's going on. Because you have Exodus 38.8 uh, that says it was built by mirrors by these ladies, but who are these ladies and what are these mirrors? And so, and so Rabbi Rashi uh, uh, noted sort of, sort of an old tale that, that, that has been told orally in the Jewish tradition of how they made it through the captivity, the 400 years that they were, they were slaves in Egypt. And um, he recounts the story. He feels like that's part of the mirror story. He says that these mirrors were called the mirrors of the hosts of Israel. The mirrors of the hosts of Israel or the people of Israel. And uh, he says that because, because uh, well, it, it, is, it is a biblical fact that the people of God, the Israelites, were very fertile. They multiplied pretty darn quick. Uh, you basically, you have, 12, you have 12 families that moved to Egypt, and then 10 generations later, you have about a million and a half people. And that's not from, like, population growth where people immigrated to them. This is all just their family. That's a pretty large family. They're having a lot of kids. And even in the middle of that, Pharaoh tries to slow down the population growth, and he kills every male child under up to two years old so that he can wipe out an entire generation and slow down the population growth. Still doesn't happen. They're still, you know, they're producing like rabbits. Like they got, they got kids popping out all over the place. 
So much so. No, this is, this is, even, this is even in the biblical record, remember? Because Pharaoh calls the midwives and says, what's going on? I thought I told you to deal with these babies. And they're like, dude, I can't. They're having kids so quick and so many. By the time we get there, like it's already done. And, 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 and so even the Egyptians were like, something weird's going on with the amount of kids these people are having. And so the Jews uh, in the Talmud and, and in the Midrash, they say that God was blessing them, that God was making it happen, which there's no reason to believe that's not true. Uh, but there was absolute oppression. God can be blessing you, but man, you're still up against some stuff. And Pharaoh said, look, we're going to slow down this population growth one way or another. And so first he tried to kill off the babies, which he does in every generation <laughs> when he's afraid of what's coming. So he dealt with the babies, and when that didn't work, he started dealing with the men, which he does in every generation when he's afraid of what's coming. He, the Bible says he made the, their labor hard, meaning they had to work longer hours in the field, and when they came home, they were so beaten down. Basically, the enemy's tactics haven't changed much. If he can remove the father from the home, and if he can emasculate the father... Make him feel less than, make him feel not worthy, make him feel not valuable, make him, make him not think that he is the priest of his own home. If he can, if he can do that, then he can, he can break the plan of God for that family. And so Pharaoh said, I'm, I, I tell you what, I'm not even going to touch the women. I'm going to make the men work harder and longer, and they're going to be in the field so long, and by the time they come home, they're just going to sleep for literally a few hours and then go back to work. I mean, it was, it was brutal. If, if you read the description of what he had them do, and then you understand what, what making bricks in, in those days meant, it was insane the kind of work that he had them do. And so this was going to crush the hosts or the people of Israel. This was going to break them. But, ladies, the women stepped up. Come on, somebody. The women stepped No, No, they did. According to the Jewish tradition, the women stepped up, and they got their mirrors. And uh, according to the Jewish tradition, they used the mirrors to make themselves look pretty. Which that ought to tell you something, ladies. Like, it's easy. It's not complicated. It's, it, you, you, we don't require long, deep conversations. <laughs> I mean, just this right here. Like, this is, <laughs> this is what it does. Like, yeah, I mean, I should probably save the rest for the marriage seminar, the marriage sermon. Because if you can save your marriage with a mirror, come on, somebody, that's something that's all about this right here. Like, it's not, it's not emotional. It's not connection. It's not, they didn't bake him anything. Like, it's literally, it's just, it's just, it's presentation. Come on, Poppy. That's what I'm talking about. It's just the presentation. They just used their mirror to make themselves look good. And then they went out to the field where their husbands were. So they took some initiative. Right? So if he can't be home, I'm going to go to where he is. And so they, 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 they dealt with the important stuff. Come on. I can do some amens right there. Some <laughs> men that aren't afraid. Man, I know I've been talking about getting rid of your mirrors, but honestly, Christian ladies, don't you hold on to it. Like, you need it. You need it only in the right place, all right? You need it in the right context. So it's helpful. Uh, and so she, you know, she, she, she would doll herself up 
she would make herself look good because she has a mirror. She can do it. And, and then she goes out to the field. Now, 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 now this, is, this is important when it comes to intimacy. Simple intention is not, by one person is not enough. To have real intimacy, you need to have two equals coming together. And this is where it's difficult because we live in a culture where men are emasculated. They are told their opinion doesn't matter. They are told that they're ignorant. They are told that they're, that they're driven by, by stuff that doesn't matter. And so, and so, and so, and so what the woman would do, she, she wouldn't, as she's walking out, he sees her, she's beautiful, and he looks at himself. He's like, man, I'm, I'm trash. I'm dirty. I'm muddy. I'm, I stink. It's, it's, I'm not worthy. So you can't have intimacy when you don't have equality. And so the, and so the equality between, and so, so the woman was smart. She, she used to play this game. Apparently, according to the Jewish tradition, they used to play the game with the mirror. Now, I mentioned it to Roe, and she was not going for it, but <laughs> I'm just saying. I don't know if that's just her. Uh, you guys can try this at home if you like. I don't mind if you're married. Um, but, uh, you know, she would, she, would, she, would, she would bring out the mirror, and this is 3,500 years ago in a different culture, so they were a little strange. So she would break out the mirror, and, and she, would, she, she would have her husband look in the mirror with her, which that is part of equality. If we can both look at the same thing. If we can, and this is where, man, getting Jesus in the middle of your marriage is the best thing you can do. Because if we can both see our reflection in the mirror of the word of God, which is what James 5 says, you come to the mirror and you see who you are. You don't see your version or other people's version, but in the word of God, God shows you. See, when they, I'm getting ahead of myself, when they built the basin with their mirrors, they were exchanging one mirror for another. They were saying, let me give you what others think of me to build something so I can understand what God thinks of me. They were, it was an exchange. You, they weren't totally giving up their mirrors. They were exchanging their mirrors for God's mirrors, their image for God's image, their word for God's word. And that's what's so important, even in a marriage, that we come together and we both gaze on the word of God, that we come together and we both understand what God thinks about us. And so that's, that's the first step. And so, so she would hold up the mirror, and the two of them would look in the mirror, and they would play this little game. And she would say, I'm more beautiful than you. Which Ro, that's, that's why Ro didn't. She didn't want me. Anyway. But see, but here's the thing. Guys are competitive. Come on, somebody. She, she understands guys are competitive. And if you want to build up somebody's confidence... She would, say, she would say, I'm more beautiful than you. And he'd, be, he'd look at the mirror, and he'd see all his mud and sweat and nastiness, his beard's growing out. And he'd say, no, I'm more beautiful than you. And she'd say, I'm more beautiful than you. And they play this game where they're competing to who's the most beautiful. And what she's doing is she's getting him to say about him what she thinks about him. She's getting him to believe about him what she thinks about him. She's building him up, and his confidence rises, and a lot of babies were conceived in fields, according to the Jewish Talmud. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Little Johnny came about because of the mirror. That's why it was called. No, seriously, that's why it was called the mirror of the host of Israel, because they're like, this is responsible for little Johnny and little Sarah. That's right. It was it was the mirror in the field, April 22nd. Like and because because this look, when they gave up their mirrors and this is this is true, whether whether you believe in the Jewish tales or not, when they gave up their mirrors, they were giving up more than just their vanity piece. They were giving up what got them through their slavery. 
They were giving up what was very important to them. It, when they had nothing, they had their mirrors. When they had nothing, they had each other. And now that they have everything, they're coming before God. And, and, and it's interesting because it says that the women that gave up the mirrors were the ones who were worshiping at the door of the tabernacle. And uh, some, some believe that the only reason women would be worshiping at the door of the tabernacle is because after they would give birth to kids, they would go to the tabernacle to give thanks to God. So it's almost like these women having, 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 an, having another little Jacob or another little Johnny for the first time in freedom. See, every other child was born in slavery, but now they're born in freedom. Now they can go to sleep when they want to, and they can wake up when they want to. Now they own something. Now they have their own name. Now they're, now they're creating their own space and their own legacy. It, giving birth to children in freedom is different than giving birth to children in slavery. Having a family in the, in the church, in the outer tabernacle, in the outer court is different than having a family out in the world. Having, ha- having a husband and a wife here is different than having a husband and a wife there. And it's not different like it's worse. No, it's way better. It's so much greater because the stuff you needed back there to trick and manipulate and get your way and figure out how you were going to make it, you don't need it anymore because now you have freedom. Now you have joy. Now you have peace. Now you have Jesus. And so I'm just wondering if maybe they were, they were bringing their... They're babies to the, to the tabernacle. Look, little Johnny was born. Isn't this great? And then Moses says, hey, we need some really highly polished mirrors. And these ladies are like, I got some back at the house I haven't used since Egypt. Because I haven't needed it. Because my husband already believes in himself. Because our family is already united. Because we already have intimacy. We already have joy. We already have peace. I don't need this gimmick anymore. It got me. Look. What got you there is not necessarily what's going to take you to the next level. And if you're not willing to give up what got you there, I know you needed it when you were in slavery. You needed it when you didn't have anybody. You needed it when you were by yourself. It helped you for a time. But now that you're at the door of the tabernacle, there is someone who is much greater than any cigarette box or any addiction or any way of thinking or any mode of behavior or any, well, they said that, so I'm going to do this. Uh, you you might have got your mirror from your grand, grandma who passed it down. We have generational mirrors that we need to turn in. Because it got your parents through and it got them. I get it. It was at a different time. But you are experiencing more freedom than they ever dreamt of. Turn in your mirrors. You don't need it. You don't need it. Moses says we need some mirrors. Great. I have some mirrors laying around. I'm not using anymore. Because there was a time when I needed it. I don't need it now. Because freedom changes. Changes everything changes everything. The freedom that comes with Jesus changes everything. They turn in their mirrors. So Father, I come to you right now and I just sense the Spirit is just speaking to different ones. The key is to wash in the Word. The Word of God. The Word of God is not a worship experience. It is the Logos, the written, and it is the spoken Word of God. And it is the person. The Word of God has a name. His name is Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and He was God. And He put on flesh, and He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. We saw His glory. So, Father, we come to You in His name. Many of us are holding on to mirrors holding on to ways of thinking and ways of operating and ways of relating to you and others. That's keeping us at this level. 
And you have another level for us. You have another dimension for us. So, Lord, may we give up some things. May we lay down some things in order to build something. These ladies gave up their mirrors for the miraculous event of the presence of God dwelling among a people. The miracle came on the back, though, of mirrors. It came on the back of sacrifice. It came on the back of releasing. It came on, it came on the heels of, of turning over and, and, and turning in and letting go and, and submitting and, and releasing and flowing and sending out and, and, and going back home and digging through the rummage and getting it out of the house because it's not necessary anymore. This is how the miracle of, of the basin came to be. And in Exodus 30, it says, God said that anyone who touches the basin will be made holy. <laughs> that God was going to so bless their mirrors. That he was going to so bless their bondage and their captivity. He was going to so overwhelmingly bless where they've come from. That even just touching the basin would bring about holiness. Would bring about cleansing. And Lord, that's what we need. That's what we want. We don't just want a church experience. We want to receive from you all that you have for us. And God may be speaking to you about laying something down, giving something up, turning something in. I encourage you to respond in obedience to that. Even just right now, make a decision, make a commitment. Say, yeah, this thing that you're laying on my heart, I'm going to submit it. I'm going to turn it in. It might be a physical, actual physical thing, actually. Like a, like a cell phone. But, uh, or it might be a mental thing. It might be a, a heart thing. It might be an attitude. There, there, there was a time when you needed to be defensive just to survive. But you, don't, you don't need it anymore. There was a time you needed to prove yourself because you were around people that that's all they understood, but you don't need it anymore. There's a time when you needed to run. Because there was danger, but you don't need it anymore. When you're standing in the door of the tabernacle, the presence of God, the immense, the profound love that God would come and dwell with man. When you're standing at the door, the door is Jesus. When you're standing at the door, you don't need it. You can lay it down here. <laughs> and you can see what God does with it. And for all of human, for the rest of human history, it's been recorded that there were some ladies who contributed. Hmm. Lord, we give you the praise and the honor and the glory for who you are. Seeing you is so much better than looking at ourselves. So we exchange, exchange the mirror for the miracle of your presence. For the miracle of your presence in our home, for the miracle of your presence in our church. So much better than looking at ourselves. Wash us, Lord, with your word. Renew our minds. Wash us. In Jesus' name. Amen.